Two weeks ago, I shared with you, uh, if you remember, shopping, sorting, and safeguarding, which were the movement from the free market religion towards the idea that we all sort and then we all safeguard ourselves. In that talk, I mentioned that the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial with John T. Scopes in Dayton, Tennessee, was the beginning of fundamentalism. That is wrong. So, for those of you who heard that message, and it was so funny because I was saying it out loud, I was like, I think I'm off a decade. And it's right, I was off a decade. Fundamentalism actually began as an emergent movement against critical thinking and theory post-enlightenment around 1910. Scope's trial was in 1925. It's still... Yes, thank you, Bruce. Boo, shame on the booing and shaming. <laughs> um, we really try hard to be academically honest in this place. And so just like any good uh, endeavor, if you make a mistake, you make sure that you correct it and voice that. It is still true that the 1925 Scopes trial was a key turning point in the continual bifurcation of fundamentalism and evangelicalism. So that is still true. But it is incorrect to say that that is the starting place of fundamentalism. That goes a little bit further back, about 10 to 15 years. So there's my correction. I will put this also on the podcast. We do that every now and then and when it is appropriate so that you know that what you hear can be trusted and we build that strong relationship with all of you. And I hope you appreciate that. Thank you, Bruce, for still loving me even in the midst of the decision. Over the last couple of weeks in our Why Jesus series, we've had the thrill and the privilege of hearing your voice. And it's been honestly one of my favorite things that we've done. And today we have our very own Kelly Gilbert coming to share. Please welcome everybody. Kelly. Baby in tow. Hi. For those of you I haven't met before, I'm Kelly, and I've been at Spark since it opened, actually, um, many years. And um, one of the things I'm really grateful for about Spark is that I feel like as my faith has kind of changed and grown and been challenged and stretched over the years, I felt like I've always been able to still find a home here in all that questioning, in all the ways that it's changed um, kind of a lot. I grew up in um, a sort of very evangelical, fundamentalist um, Assemblies of God church, and um, I was a really sort of very sheltered child, and I kind of only experienced the world through the lens of that church. Um, and for some of you who also grew up in sort of the evangelical 90s culture, you probably would be familiar with the same, like the, um, the true love weight stuff or the like t-shirts that were like go against the flow or the plus one concerts, um, that kind of thing. And one of the things that I feel like really characterized my faith growing up was that I was really certain about everything. And it was awesome. I always had all the answers. I knew everything. Um, I never really doubted anything because everything felt really black and white to me. Um, I'm glad there was no internet then because I would have been like arguing on the internet all the time about like how everything was just like so simple, so easy. And um, I felt also, I think, in that really close to God because I think it felt like a very prescriptive way of looking at the world because it was like, you know, if you do X and X, then Y and Z will happen. 
Um, and it felt like sort of a really easy way to sort of know who God was, what he wanted, what was going to happen to the world. Um, everything was sort of wrapped up in that for me. And um, I think because of that, too, I was always able to accept answers to things that maybe didn't fully make sense or I felt like don't really maybe address some of the questions I had um, one of the things that I felt like as a kid was I felt like I was really shielded sort of in this worldview from the concept of evil and how much of a foothold it has in the world and how many bad things happen because um, I think when you're sort of a really sheltered and privileged child, it's really easy for those things to feel really theoretical. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, of course God has a plan. It's very easy to sort of, you know, feel that way. Um, and when I got older and sort of saw more of the world and experienced it more, not through the lens of this like very specific upbringing, um, a lot of those answers stopped working for me. Um, I felt that I'd been sort of raised in a specific culture, less so than a faith. And it was kind of just this worldview of looking at the world that was partly about God, yes, but also sort of very reflective of the people who believed those things and sort of the way they wanted the world to look. Um, and I'd, as a child, really absorbed that. Um, and the thing that I feel like now, I think sort of where I am in faith and just the question of Jesus is um, a lot of the questions that I sort of skimmed over as a child, I feel like now are sort of coming back and are much bigger for me. Um, the questions of evil, the questions of suffering, um, how to not have despair at the ways that you know powerful people can destroy the innocent. Um, and I think it can be harder now with sort of a more clear vision to look at the world and not feel like evil is just like winning a lot of the time. Um, and so I would say that now I have a lot more questions than I used to and a lot less certainty. And in some ways, I really miss that certainty because it was so easy. It was a really comfortable, comfortable way to live. Um, and in this new sort of gray and scarier space, though, I feel like there's sort of more room for Jesus in it because I feel like there's so much less space that sort of I can fill up with kind of my comfortable ideas about how things can be easy and safe and sort of like the answers I'd always had. And now there are all these like huger questions that I have. Um, and I think for there to be any sense of the world there or any kind of true redemption, it seems really clear that, oh, sorry, baby. Um, <laughs> those answers are never going to be found sort of in the world um, in a lot of the sort of easy religious answers that maybe I would have accepted when I was younger. And I feel like they can only be found through Jesus um, and his sort of like radical vision of what the world was and what love was and what he calls us to. Um, Jesus's teachings about how the oppressed will find justice and how his kingdom subverts the world's expectations of like power and wealth and those seem like sort of the only way to have hope to me now. Um, and I think I can take hope now in the way that Jesus was the victim of some of the absolute worst evils in our world, the way we can viciously oppress the innocent, or the ways that we can find ourselves complicit in that, and how he defeated um, death on both sides of heaven. Um, one of the things that Pastor Kevin has said a couple times that I feel like is really heartening to me is that the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Um, and I feel like that's really sort of characterized my journey with Jesus, the idea that when things maybe don't seem as clear-cut or you have these bigger questions or these sort of more high-stakes things about the world that you wonder or that you're afraid of or whatever, um, that those are the places where 
I feel like we, or at least I need Jesus more desperately than I did when everything felt more clear-cut to me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly, so much. for. First of all, I'd like to apologize to Pastor Kevin. Uh, I spend most of my Sundays in a room over there getting heckled by children, so I, I had to do it. I'm sorry. And uh, Bruce, I hope you love me too. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you. It's been a long time since I was last here. Uh, and I'd also like to thank someone very special, my wife, Stacy Ishigaki Arevalo, who spent much of the last two days helping me work on this and uh, get this all set up. She's a teacher. She's got skills. And so I relied on what she had. So, Stacy, thank you so much. So if this goes well, it's because of her. If this goes badly, it's because of her. Uh, <laughs> so, thanks, thank you for joining me for our third installation in the sermon series titled, Why Jesus? If you joined us for the last two weeks, you've heard Pastor Kevin discuss the lenses through which we see our faith and how we have arrived there through history. And you've also heard two powerful stories from members of our community, Rajesh Filipos and Siddhi Sundar. And you just heard from Kelly Gilbert, who offered her personal testimony as to why she chooses to follow Jesus. And now I'm here to talk about suffering. Initially, I had thought about presenting the history of Christian doctrine on suffering and to speak about apologetics, the branch of Christian doctrine that focuses on the question, why choose Jesus? It seemed apropos, but honestly, apologetics has never really been that interesting to me. Suffering is a key part of theodicy, another doctrinal branch that asks the question, how could a good God allow evil to exist in the world? We could compare how Christianity offers better answers on suffering than any other existential views and belief systems, but that's not really the point of the series either. Of course, we could take time to compare and contrast doctrines and structures, but as the boxer Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. In other words, logic and reason go out the window when suffering enters the picture. And then the question becomes very simple. God, why did you allow this to happen? This was the question my mother asked four years ago as she sat on a hospital bed outside Seattle, Washington. The cancerous tumor on her inner thigh was growing tremendously. And as she sat in that bed, writhing in pain for what seemed like hours, pressing the morphine delivery button over and over and over again. She turned to me and she winced. Mark, why? Why is this happening to me? The answer I gave her is based upon the views I will detail here. But the answer I gave her and the answer that you might get from me here may not be the same. I'll offer a framework for why God allows things to happen, but it might not be satisfactory to you. What I will try to do is to point out some views on suffering that you might be holding on to and offer some alternatives based on what the Christian faith suggests and then point to what God might be offering to those in suffering. The sermon is titled, Suffer God His Grace. If you've heard me pray in services past, you might have heard me quote the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In the Old English King James Version of the Bible, it is written thusly, Suffer little children, and forgive them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. 
Given our modern usage of the word suffer, this sounds a little crazy. Suffer little children? You mean hurt them? But that's not what suffer means in this case. What it means is allow or permit. So by saying suffer God his grace, I mean to say allow God to share his grace with you in whatever way he chooses. And we may not like his methods. So what does the world tell us about suffering? Well, it seems that our world offers three possibilities. The first is, suffering is punishment. We have a belief in our world, and that our world is built with inherent goodness and happiness and justice as the default. As Martin Luther King Jr. put it, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. We all hold this view inherently, that whoever or whatever guides the movement of time and space is doing so just because it is just. It's a just God. We live in a just universe. And we maintain this unspoken bargain with this world and God or the powers that be that if I display good behavior and spread goodwill in this world, then I will experience these good things. If, however, I display bad behavior and spread discord in this world, then I will experience bad things. In other words, if I'm a good person, then only good will happen to me and the powers will be that will protect me. If I'm a bad person, then the powers that be will punish me, and I accept that bargain. For examples of good following after good, we can look to the Bible and hear from David, a king celebrating a military success over his long-held enemies. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. When something bad happens the first thing we look to do is assign blame. If someone experiences suffering, it's because they did something wrong. It's because they were bad people. We see it throughout the human experience, including the Bible, from Adam and Eve taking a bite out of the forbidden fruit and thus being cast out of the Garden of Eden. So the nation of Israel being disobedient to God's law and being exiled from the Promised Land. We hear the prophet Jeremiah speaking as God to the people, stating in a clear causal relationship why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. In other words, suffering is punishment for sin. And so if you're asking, why do bad things happen to good people? Why did something bad happen to me? It's because you're not a good person. You deserved it. This is the consequence of your sin. This hauls right into our inherent understanding of Good follows after good, and bad follows after bad. But what about when we feel we haven't done anything wrong, and yet we still suffer? We say, God, I didn't do anything bad. I've been faithful. I've been honest. I've been good. I kept my part of the bargain. Why have you broken your part of the deal? This leads us to the second view that our world tells us about suffering. Suffering is random. It just happens. This is another common belief in the human experience, and the Bible seems to speak of it as well. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says this, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, and neither don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
Vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. Nothing lasts. Nothing has meaning. When you succeed, it's not a blessing. When you fail, it's not a punishment. It just is. Accept it so you can move on with your life. You can assign blame, but ultimately there's no one to blame. And for those looking at that tacit agreement with God, those who expected God to protect them and bless them if they did good and then only saw suffering, what are they to believe? The logical conclusion, there's no one to blame. No one. God doesn't bless the good or punish the wicked because there is no God. At least not a good one. For some, that makes perfect sense. But for those optimists out there who just can't let go of your misguided theism, the idea of a chaotic universe or a world rooted in justice is just too great a leap. So there's a third possibility that our world tells us about suffering. It's a test. And you can either pass or fail. What are you made of? Who are you at your root? To paraphrase a view from the world of sports, suffering doesn't build character, it reveals it. Suffering is about proving your worth. It is evolution at work. Those who can adapt to adversity will last. Those who cannot will fall away. Your encounter with suffering is external to you. Your overcoming of suffering, it's completely dependent on you. And again, it seems that we see this view of suffering throughout the human experience and also in the Bible. And the obvious example that people will point to is Job. In this story, God has allowed Satan to kill this man Job's family and to take all of his possessions and his health. And his wife, seeing this, adds one final stab. Do you hold fast to your integrity? Bless God and die. Or as some translations will say, curse God and die. Why does God allow this? Well, seemingly, it's a test of loyalty. Will Job curse me after I've allowed so much suffering in his life? We see Job waver, but ultimately God pro- he proves himself worthy to God, and God gives Job a new family and new possessions. Job has passed the test. And from the Bible, we also hear some of the most common encouragements given by followers of Jesus to those in suffering. What all these verses essentially say is, you can get through this. What they all imply, you can get through this if you trust God. If you don't get through this, it's because you failed the test God placed before you. You didn't have enough faith in God to see you through. And so frankly, the suffering that you are undergoing is justified. You deserve that. This takes us right back to our first worldview. Suffering is punishment. And so here we are. Suffering is punishment. Suffering is random. Suffering is a test. And if you fail it, your punishment is suffering. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I have provided examples from the Bible, the Word of God, delivered from a pulpit, proving that without a shadow of a doubt, each of the worldviews I just stated are true. And thus ends the sermon. Let us pray. (laughs) They told me to finish before the Niner game ended. I was was trying my best, guys. I was trying my best. We're not done. We're not done. I presented these views on suffering, and they all sound about right, don't they? Given our individual experiences, given the history of human experience, they all seem to line up with the facts. All of these things are true. Half true. Our world chooses to accept these half-truths, 
because these half-truths are simple. Suffering is punishment is a simple worldview. There are good people and there are bad people. Good people succeed, bad people suffer. That's easy for me to understand. <laughs> suffering is random is a, another simple worldview. I can't make sense of a world where an infant is stillborn or a three-year-old is killed by a stray bullet while a military despot rules from on high. So I won't try to make sense of it. Suffering is a test, is a simple worldview. My sister grew up in poverty. It was a test that she failed. She hustled, she sold drugs, she hurt others, she ended up in jail, and she took her own life. Her fault. Others made it through. She didn't because she was weak. The whole truth is complex. It's messy. It's uncomfortable. And we need to engage in it. The half-truth is that suffering is punishment. The full truth, the fuller truth, is that suffering can result from punishment. But for who? Whose punishment are we talking about? Please allow me to set all of this up with a little bit of Christian doctrine. Free will. It's widely acknowledged as one of the greatest gifts of God's humanity. And how did we arrive at this belief? It would take a long time to explain, but just go with me on this, all right? There's free will. God gave it to us so that we could be able to respond genuinely to God and his love. So that we could choose to be in a relationship with him rather than being forced or coerced into a relationship with God. But it also gave us another capability to choose to reject God and his love. To choose to love the things created over the creator. To choose to love ourselves more than God. A second gift, interconnectedness. We were meant to be in relationship with God, with and through Christ, and with and through one another. We are most ourselves when we are in relationship with those around us. We receive and we give, we give and we receive. God ex exists in relationship through the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If then we are made in God's image, then we are made to exist in relationship. So our interconnectedness with one another exists across space. I can choose to share goodness with someone thousands of miles away. And that person can then choose to share that goodness with others in their vicinity. So if I decided to share a goofy meme with someone, that person can share that meme with three friends, and they can share it with three friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. Our interconnectedness also exists across time. I can choose to share goodness with someone, and that goodness can be passed down to other generations. For example, generations ago, one of, my, uh, one of my ancestors in the Philippines learned agriculture, specifically how to raise coconut trees. He shared that knowledge with his descendants. And as that knowledge was passed over time, it arrived at my grandfather. My mother had the resources to go to college and to move to the United States because that ancestor learned how to raise coconut trees. That ancestor is the indirect reason why I'm standing here right now. Unfortunately, interconnectedness also allows us to share hatred and shame and apathy across time. A decision I make at this moment can not only affect those around me, but also those in proximity to them across space and time. This is a true story. When I was young, I was told that my great-grandfather, a wealthy Spanish landowner living in the Philippines, fell in love with my great-grandmother, a poor Filipina maid. And my grandfather was the result. 
My grandfather had nine children and over 50 great-grandchildren. It sounded very romantic, but as I got older, other aspects of the story came out. The landowner was middle-aged, and the maid was in her teens and working for the landowner. The landowner was married with multiple mistresses and multiple children born out of wedlock, including my grandfather, who was disowned by his father and rejected by his siblings for most of his life. And last year, I learned that the relationship between the landowner and his maid wasn't consensual. My grandfather was a product of rape. I asked my aunt and uncle about this, and they lowered their heads. They couldn't even look at me, and they refused to talk about it. My family lived in a community where everyone knew this, and they shared the story quietly. And now I can see how so many of my family's decisions were driven by this truth, the need for approval, the need to constantly be proving themselves when they didn't need to, the lack of self-work, the shame in their eyes when this event that took place hundreds of years, hundred years ago, suddenly came to light. Due to interconnectedness, the sin of my grandfather continues to punish my family. We can see the abuse of the, of the gift of interconnectedness in the sex abuse scandals that embroil the Roman Catholic Church. One priest abuses a young man in his community, and that young man neglects his own family or medicates himself in order to cope with the pain, or he becomes a priest himself, abuses another person, and continues this evil cycle. And we can all most assuredly see the ongoing impact of 400 years of slavery in our country. Free will and interconnectedness are meant to transmit blessings and to the deserving and the undeserving alike. But humanity has used these two gifts to communicate curses upon both the guilty and the innocent, resulting in our broken world. Suffering is punishment, and sometimes a person's suffering is self-inflicted as a consequence of their actions. And sometimes a person's suffering is in no way due to their actions, but due to the actions of another. Let's look at this verse again from Jeremiah, where he speaks as God. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. When you see this out of context, you can take this as a personal conviction. Your pain is incurable. Your guilt is great. Your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. What we're missing is that the word you doesn't refer to an individual. It's plural. It refers to the nation of Israel, an entire community. Not all of them have committed the sin, but the sin is collective. Even though there are some innocent people in this community, they're innocent of this disobedience, such as Jeremiah, the entire community, including Jeremiah, has to suffer because of interconnectedness. And the passage from which this verse comes is actually not really about punishment. It's about correction, which is different. It's about God using circumstances and consequences not to demean, but as part of a process of restoring a redeemed community. Our next half-truth, suffering is random. A fuller truth, suffering seems random, but it can be purpose-filled. Earlier, we looked at a verse from the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, 
We believe that the writer of Ecclesiastes is sharing bits of wisdom hard-earned from watching others suffer and prosper without purpose. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. But what precedes this very fatalistic statement? This. In the days of prosperity, be joyful. In the days of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Taken as a whole, the book of Ecclesiastes seems not to be an assembly of wisdom like the book of Proverbs. Someone is collecting these bits, tidbits of wisdom and placing them into this book. Instead, Ecclesiastes seems like it's one person's grand thought exercise, trying to figure this out and talking about it as he goes. What is the purpose of all these things that seem to have no purpose? His conclusion is, all these things are created by God. So where do you stand with the Creator? In an aimless life, does God provide you with a fixed point? In the Gospel of John, there's another story that speaks about this truth. In the story, we find Jesus walking through Jerusalem with his followers, and they encounter a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. This perspective is our first half-truth. Suffering is punishment. This is what the disciples are interpreting this to be. The man is blind, so therefore he's suffering. Obviously, he's suffering because he deserves not to see, or his parents did something so that their son must suffer. And Jesus gives a strange answer. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And with a miracle, Jesus gives his man sight for the first time in his life. And it continues the debate from the previous chapter between the religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus, who exactly are you? This man's blindness, his suffering, was used for a purpose. To cause the people around him to question their long-held beliefs. Blindness is a punishment by God. A man who violates the law to help someone who's being punished by God, both of them are sinners. Why would God use suffering for this purpose? Honestly, because we as human beings have difficulty letting go of our long-held beliefs. We often need to be stirred, shocked, or forced to question what we hold as true. And if we're honest with ourselves, nothing is as effective as suffering. It stirred the blind man, but it didn't stir the religious leaders. Why? Let me show you a poem that might look familiar to you. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. This poem was derived from a speech by Martin Niemöller, a Lutheran pastor and theologian living in Germany during the 1930s and 1940s. He was a supporter of the Nazis, Adolf Hitler, and their policies in the early 1930s because he supported German nationalism. Niemöller's views were at the vanguard of government and society, and he was very comfortable in that position. And reflecting on those years, Niemöller wrote in 1936, The people who were put in the camps then were communists. Who cared about them? We knew it. It was printed in the newspapers. Who raised their voice? Maybe the confessing church? We thought... Communists, those opponents of religion, those enemies of Christians, should I be my brother's keeper? Then they got rid of the sick, the so-called incurables. 
I remember a conversation I had with a person who claimed to be a Christian. He said, perhaps it's right. These incurably sick people just cost the state money. They are just a burden to themselves and to others. Isn't it best for all concerned if they are taken out of the middle of society? Only then did the church as such take notice. The persecution of the Jews, the way we treated the occupied countries, or the things in Greece, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, or in Holland, that were written in the newspapers. I believe we confessing church Christians have every reason to say, mea culpa, mea culpa, my fault. We can talk about it ourselves out of it with excuse that it would have cost me my head if I had spoken out. We prefer to keep silent. We are certainly not without guilt or fault. And I ask myself again and again, what would have happened if in the year 1933 or 1934, there must have been a possibility? What if 14,000 Protestant pastors in all Protestant communities in Germany had defended the truth until their deaths? Surrounded by suffering, Niemöller had a reason to act, but he wasn't personally impacted, so he had no need to. He felt no need to. But once the focus of Nazi oppression was aimed at him and other German Protestants, he reversed his position, and he eventually joined famed theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other Christian leaders against Nazism. He was imprisoned in a concentration camp and survived past the end of the war, becoming a spokesman for German Protestants who acknowledged that their guilt in taking a stand was much too late. Niemöller's sin was not one of commission, but omission. He had failed to heed Jesus' warning from Matthew 25. The sin is not harming the marginalized, but failing to care for the marginalized. No one can say that the Shoah or the Holocaust was done to teach humanity a lesson. But if it had a purpose, it was this. To be, as the United Nations had said, a warning to all peoples of the dangers of hatred, bigotry, racism, and prejudice. People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who spoke out against Nazism from the very beginning, are to be lauded. But most of us are not like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Most of us are like Martin Niemöller, too comfortable to recognize the need to stand up for others until our personal suffering makes that need apparent. There's just something about personal suffering, isn't there? If I read about the wildfires that are devastating Australia and its wildlife, I can say, well, that's too bad. But if I had gone through a life-changing natural disaster, such as the fires that destroyed Paradise, California two years ago, or the fires that seemed to hit Napa way too often, or if I was Australian, or I had an Australian loved one, it would change how I perceived the suffering happening there right now, wouldn't it? If I had a coworker that had been, was being harassed by another coworker, I could say, well, I hope you guys figure that out. But if I experienced harassment, if I had been treated poorly, or my partner had been treated poorly, I'm going to engage in that situation a little differently now, aren't I? We can be quick to see someone not take a position or not take action on something precious to us. The crisis at the southern border, gun violence, climate change, poverty and homelessness in our neighborhoods, institutional prejudice based on ethnicity and gender. We can see people not take stances against them, not engaged, and we can judge them for it. The truth is, we wouldn't be engaged either if we didn't feel or possess a personal connection to that issue, just like Niemöller. Personal suffering opens our eyes in, in a way that words can't. Many people change their views based on personal experience. We need to learn to have patience and grace 
for those who haven't experienced what we've experienced. And yes, even patience and grace for those who reject the legitimacy of our suffering. Thank God you haven't had to go what I've gone through. But I hope someday you can relate to it and relate to me. It's also quite possible that these people that we're judging for not getting engaged, it's possible that they themselves are dedicated to work on things that are completely worthy, but we don't see them doing it. And those issues, as small as they might be compared to what we think is important, those things might be important to God as well. And for our last truth, half-truth is suffering is a test. A fuller truth is that suffering is a test to drive an opportunity for growth. And I'm stealing something from Pastor Kevin right now. You may have heard him uh, use this analogy in the past. We are one of God's creations, one that he takes pride in, one that he uses to produce change in the world. We are a car, an automobile, fresh off the assembly line. Maybe a little rough around the edges, but with the potential to do great things as a reflection of our creator. God takes us out for a test drive in the best of situations, on a dry racing circuit on a sunny day, and in the worst of situations, on a muddy, gravelly road in a driving rainstorm. God does so not to pass or fail us, to elevate us, to discard us, depending on our performance, but to see what we can do, to see how far we've come and how far we can still go and take joy in it. During these test drives, not coincidentally known as trials, God takes us out to carry him to places here and there to leave a mark for him wherever we go. And as he drives us, God's thinking, oh, maybe I can add a little weight over here. Or maybe I can shave off this corner over here. Or maybe I can adjust the suspension here. Through these trials, God is using suffering to pare us down, to simplify and prioritize things for us, and to make us more capable. The story of Job, which we spoke of earlier, is described most often as a test of his loyalty to God in the face of personal suffering. But what people tend to miss is that Job went through a process of change. His life was pared down. He was left with nothing. And he learned a painful lesson about the sovereign nature of God. And armed with this newfound knowledge, Job was better equipped to appreciate what he was given. And as for those verses you saw earlier that imply that your suffering is deserved unless you trust God, out of context, they can be interpreted as texts tests and trials for you to prove your worth, your value, your faithfulness. Out of context. In context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yes, you can. And you're not meant to do it alone. The person speaking here, Paul, the Apostle Paul is showing his appreciation for the financial support that he's received. He's saying, yes, I struggled, but you stepped up when I was in need and shared in my trouble. I can do all things, but I needed your help. All things work together for good. Yes, they do. And if things seem not to be working out, it may be a sign of the brokenness of our world and not your lack of faithfulness to God. God has his own timetable for working things out. We might not even never see that. God will never give you more than you can handle. This is taken from 1 Corinthians 10.13. Number one, the person speaking, again Paul, isn't actually speaking about handling suffering. He's speaking about handling temptation, which is different. Number two, 
this isn't the actual verse. This is what people often butcher it into. The actual verse is God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may endure it. In other words, you can handle what God gives you, but that ability is due to God's faithfulness, not yours. Please, never use these verses to encourage someone in the midst of difficulty, at least not if you're going to take it out of context. Suffering is not simply a test of our faith. It creates a space for God to work, to show us that we aren't the captain of our own ship, the master of all we survey. We're not even the driver. We are the car, driven by the one who created us. And suffering molds us into what we were meant to be. Helen Keller, a speaker and author and follower of Jesus, who was struck deaf and blind as an infant, said, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. The source of this wisdom is our own experiences, and also from the Bible. The writer of the letter to the church at Rome spells out a process for us. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Through this process, suffering changes us. It changes our ability to endure, it unlocks something about our identity, and it enables us to see the potential good in any situation. A few months ago, after Thanksgiving, I was sitting with two other people at Spark, catching up on life. One of us had lost her father to an illness a few months before, and I asked her how she was doing. She said, during the family Thanksgiving gatherings, there were moments when I didn't notice his absence. And then there were moments when I clearly saw that he wasn't there, and he was supposed to be. And as we continued to commiserate, she said, but you know what? I learned something. I've become more empathetic to others in a way I couldn't have been before because of this loss. She was now able to walk with people through their sufferings with a whole new perspective, a whole new sensitivity, and a whole new wisdom. She wasn't minimizing her loss by any means, but she realized that because of her loss, she was better able to support others through their grief. Remember the gift of interconnectedness. None of us are meant to walk alone. There's a place and purpose for all of us in grief counseling, therapy groups, Alcoholics Anonymous, small groups. We are meant to seek understanding and offer, offer empathy for those in similar circumstances. Here are the truths, the half-truths that we discussed, and here are the fuller truths. And there's still one missing. We touched upon it in every example that I provided as it underlies everything about suffering. And here it is. Suffering draws us closer to God. Normally, when we speak of God's suffering, we speak of the passion, the days before his execution upon the cross. Some Christians will try to connect with the physical suffering, the beatings, the torture, the pain. Some Christians will try to connect with the psychological and emotional suffering, the abandonment, the shame, the disconnection. All of that is true. But when I think of drawing closer to God, I think about having a God, heart after God's, heart for the people that God loves. And God's heart most definitely rested with those in pain. His desire to connect with his beloved 
led him to become one of us, to experience the joys and sufferings of human existence. We're called to follow in his example and to draw close to God by drawing close to those in pain. As author Tom Holland wrote, that the Son of God, born of a woman, and sentenced to the death of a slave, has perished unrecognized by his judges, was a reflection fit to give pause to even the haughtiest monarch. This awareness could not help but lodge in its consciousness a visceral and momentous suspicion that God was closer to the weak than to the mighty, to the poor than to the rich. Any beggar, any criminal, might be Christ. So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the awareness that the kingdom of God is upside down, that those who stand above in his kingdom are the brokenhearted, the grieving, the humble, the downtrodden, the maligned, the marginalized, because their suffering has caused them to draw closer to God. So, suffering. We view it according to these half-truths we have quietly subscribed to all of our lives, and we avoid suffering as much as we possibly can. Our confirmation biases throughout life lead us to twist and turn and interpret these experiences of life to fit our beliefs. God, however, asks us to wrestle with the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. And armed with the truth, go out there and share it. If you are going through something right now, listen to me. Your suffering is a sign that you are not meant to go through this alone. Reach out to someone, someone in this room even. Let them know. Take a risk. There was a CBS News article this morning that reported that suicide, suicides are at their highest rates since World War II and that there are now twice as many suicides than homicides in the United States. There are people suffering silently all around us. We're constantly around them. We're constantly with them. And we don't recognize that they might be having the worst day in their lives. Don't close your eyes to it. If you know someone who is suffering, don't wait. Don't wait until it's too late to tell them that you care and that they matter. Jesus did it for us. And for some of us, right in the nick of time. Please, do it for them. Please stand if you are able for a benediction. For all of you who are seeking a greater truth in your suffering, may you find the fuller and greater and deeper and more profound truth in the life and the person of Jesus. And in the midst of your life and your suffering, may you find an otherworldly grace, purpose, meaning, comfort, and presence of the Spirit that is beyond understanding. And may it bring you hope and joy, solace, and an identity that grounds you in the person and the work of Jesus. And may that be true in this day and tomorrow and the next day and for the rest of your life. Amen.